Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Craig Settles. I am the host for Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I want to welcome everyone today to uh, the show. Uh, thank you for taking time to be with us. Um, today's program is sponsored by Hiawatha Broadband Communications, an FTP uh, provider committed to connecting rural communities and economies to the world. Uh, and you can check them out at www.hbci.com. So we're here to, to talk about broadband and how communities, companies, nonprofits can get more, better broadband every place where broadband needs to be. Uh, today, I'm very happy that our guest is uh, Jonathan Adelstein, who is the administrator for the USDA's Rural Utilities Service Group, which together with NTIA awarded over $7 billion in broadband stimulus grants for broadband infrastructure, computing centers, and broadband adoption programs. And Mr. Adelstein, thank you and welcome to Gigabit Nation. Well, Craig, thanks for having me on. This has been a uh, an interesting year. A lot's going on. You know, I follow the things that are, you know that, that you guys are working on, and I know there's a lot. And uh, we're going to try to you know clear away some of the underbrush and just kind of get straight to you know what programs are going on. I do want to start though with just getting a general overview, sort of a wrap on the the stimulus program. You know, how many programs were funded? Uh, you know, maybe some general demographics on you know. Uh, who were some of the recipients of these awards? Well, great question, Craig. It was really a accomplishment for us to be able to take $2.5 billion that we got to, from Congress under the uh, Recovery Act and turn that into $3.5 billion in loans and grants because we, we took the money we got and expanded it using the leverage from the appropriation to actually provide loans as well as grants, which, which is what we specialize in. We've been doing primarily rural financing. We have some small grant programs, but uh, financing is our specialty, delivering capital. So we were able to uh, get out over 300 pro- programs, 300 individual uh, awards with those funds that will bring broadband access, either new or improved broadband, to nearly 7 million Americans. It will benefit 230,000 businesses and nearly uh, in a number of anchor institutions like hospitals and libraries. Uh, we really, I think, um, got a huge bang for the buck out of this, and, and it's something that will transform these rural communities for years to come. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do you have a rough idea about how many of these programs are breaking ground? Yeah, well, quite a few of them have broken ground. We have over a billion in economic activity already underway, uh, so we're we're um, doing pretty well. I mean, it, some of them are still caught up in environmental review, unfortunately. That process is taking longer than we'd anticipated. <clears throat> some of them are caught up in the states that are doing historical review, and uh, I don't know why it's taking so long out there, considering that a lot of these are on existing rights-of-way, but, you know, these bureaucratic processes take a long time outside of our agency. So we're pleased that a lot of them are underway. More of them will be going up soon. Uh, Construction is actively underway throughout the country in the middle of the summer here, and of course will be curtailed again in the northern states in the next few months as the as the weather turns. Right, that, that makes sense. Uh, now, are there, um, is there any way for some of these projects to get an extension on their due dates 
if they're having such a uh, hard time getting the environmental review process done. Because uh, if I'm not mistaken, all of these grants have very specific endpoints in which they have to be completed. But you basically have one agency that's responsible for processing the first step before they can actually get moving. Is there some accountability for that? Well, the three years doesn't count until after their environmental review is done. So we're not holding them up over that. But they, okay, gotcha. they do have to get it done three years uh, shortly there, thereafter in order to make sure that this creates the jobs that we need to have going. And, and more importantly, we want to get that broadband out there now. I mean, it, people can't wait for, for getting the broadband. We get all kinds of inquiries from people. When is my program going to be delivering me broadband? They really, they really want that, and they... They, uh, we need to do that for our economy. I mean, these people need to immediately have access to the health care, educational, and business opportunities that broadband brings, and we don't want to see that delayed. So we're pushing our awardees to get moving on these projects. We're pushing the, the reviewing agencies to get the environmental reviews done, and those that are underway, some will be actually completed this summer and in the fall, uh, and more will be completed as time goes on. And that sounds pretty good. I mean, I think that there's definitely a sense of momentum uh, with the program, and, and people are happy to see this process uh, move forward. Now, having said that, um, and, and as you know, I've been out front pushing a lot of the, the broadband uh, advancement, there also have been complaints from industry players that RUS has allowed a, a number of areas that are already being served to be overbuilt. Now, what's your feeling about these complaints? I mean, is building overbuilding a bad thing if communities find that incumbent services are not meeting the needs of those communities? Well, ideally, we're getting as much of the resources targeted towards unserved and underserved areas as we can, but broadband doesn't follow neat lines. As you know, uh, it's not along the county line or the city line. I mean, some places are going to have broadband, and when somebody sets up a network or has a system and they, they've got certain licenses or they've got certain uh, rights of way or certain plans, there may be some... Uh, situations where there are competing services throughout some of the service territory. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, some of that is necessary to make it financially feasible. I mean, if you go into purely unserved areas, those are the hardest to serve. By definition, uh, there's a reason nobody's serving those places. They're expensive. And uh, if you just provide a network that's only built in those areas, uh, it generally won't be financially sustainable. And so it won't be sustainable for the long haul. Yeah, they might get broadband for a little while, but then it won't be there for years to come when they need it and people come to rely on it. So there's it, it's, it's quite complicated, but we do try to focus on places that need it most without uh, without too much overbuilding. But, you know, there's, there's a donut in the hole situation here sometimes, and if you just do the donut and you don't do the hole, you don't end up uh, with a financially feasible project. Right, and I can see where that might become a uh, a problem. Um, I'm going to come back to some of the, the stimulus questions I have received from some of my uh, uh, folks who follow my tweets and whatnot, but I wanted to get an overview of the other programs because RUS has clearly been identified with the broadband stimulus, but I think a number of folks don't realize there are other programs for which RUS is responsible. So can you give us a, a breakdown and maybe for each one give a little overview of you know how does a, an entity, an organization, qualify for being part of that program? Sure. I'd be happy to go over that. Now, you know, in terms of our overall programs, just so you know, we are the former Rural Electrification Administration, and our, and our biggest programs are actually rural electric. We have about a 
over $40 billion portfolio we've been developing since 1935 in electric infrastructure, which uh, really shows that we have about a $4.2 billion telecom uh, portfolio. So our our telecom portfolio is vastly eclipsed by electric. And in fact, our water systems, we provide rural water and waste systems is over $10 billion. Uh, we did just as much uh, in the stimulus program for water and waste as we did for telecom. But, of course, telecom, for some reason, gets a lot of the attention. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> it reminds me of when I when I was on the FCC. Certain things got a lot of attention that uh, were out of proportion. But, in, in fact, our broadband program is extremely important. And it's only one of the programs that we run under uh, under uh, our, our authoriz authorization. We have a telecommunications infrastructure loan program, which is our traditional program. Since 1949, the former REA, now the RUS, has been providing uh, financing for rural telephone systems. Back then, a lot of them were on party lines or didn't have any telephone service at all. Farmers would string uh, telephone lines along their fence posts, and rural electric co-ops would set themselves up to provide telephone service, and we were their back office. We'd give them the technical specs. We'd give them the financing uh, to do it. Since 1995, that program has required all of the investments to be broadband capable. If you think about it, that's going way back. Not a lot of people were talking about broadband back in 1995, but our program was financing only broadband-capable plan. Uh, later in 2002, back when I was on the Hill working for Senator Daschle, he was on the Ag Committee, we got an authorization to do a broadband program, rural broadband loan program, which has been in the news uh, lately with uh, issues in Congress over funding, et cetera. Uh, and that program loans to build and expand broadband networks and services as well as serving the traditional uh, telephone companies that are the primary beneficiaries of the telecommunications infrastructure program. Mm -hmm. On top of that, of course, we had the, the Recovery Act program, which we've already discussed. And we have two smaller grant programs. Uh, one of them is the Community Connect grant program, which connects communities with no broadband whatsoever and requires them to set up a public computer center so everybody has access to that. Uh, and free service for local uh, public safety. Great little program, about $13 million. We're going to be announcing, we think, next week the awardees for this year for the Community Connect Grant Program. Uh, and again, because these places are totally unserved, a, a grant makes sense. Um, we also have a distance learning and telemedicine loan and grant program, which provides loans and grants for, primarily grants now, for providing distance learning and telemedicine services. This isn't uh, one that connects the, 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 the say the school and the the rural school it or the the hospital and the rural clinic it provides the equipment on either end it's the only federal program that actually provides equipment so that you know the video equipment for example one side the community college might get equipment to transmit get video cameras and things to send the information out to rural schools throughout the state and then we'd provide the rural schools with the screens or whatever they need to be able to receive that information and have a very effective network. Uh, so, and for hospitals and clinics, we do the same thing. So the rural areas can take advantage of, of the broadband we're providing. We, we want to make sure they have the equipment on either end to make that happen. And we'll be announcing our awards there this fall. Mm -hmm. Now, how in planning for next year, how would someone be able to take advantage of that? Is there a, uh, a strenuous application process? You know, uh, and what kinds of things would they have to show to prove need? I mean, give us just a sense of, of how the program would be executed. 
Well, they, these are competitive grant programs. The distance learning and the Community Connect programs are competitive, so you need to apply. We do a, a notice of funds that are available, and uh, folks can get on our uh, email list for that, or they can look on our website at uh, at USDA.gov and just type in RUS, and you'll find us. Um, and that gives a small description of the programs, and they can call us and get more detail if they want. Um, so we're happy to work with anybody who is interested in applying for those programs. Uh, the the um, other programs, the loan programs, are not competitive. They're basically first come, first serve. So if you're the first to apply for a broadband loan in your uh, territory, then you get first dibs if you're eventually if you win it, we don't loan against ourselves, so you'd be the uh, awardee in that area. If you don't, then the place, if we rejected the application, then because it wasn't feasible either technically or financially, then the next person could apply after that application was dispensed with. So our loan programs are kind of rolling open. They're open anytime for people to apply for funding. We really encourage folks to apply for financing for rural broadband. We have uh, funds available this year under that, and there's a lot of needs out there, but there's not a lot of capital available. So we're one of the last banks in America that's providing financing for those purposes. Mm -hmm. Now, with the Community Connect and the Distance Learning Telemedicine Program and the Broadband Loan Program, is that the total then of programs that are directed toward broadband-related uh, needs and applications? Yeah, those are our four main programs right there. Mm -hmm. So now I do have a couple of questions that came up during, again, the, the stimulus program that I'm wondering sort of how they may be resolved during, you know, going forward with some of these other uh, programs. Uh, for example, uh, there was a lot of commentary about the percentage of wireless projects that were funded versus wireline projects. And the it's a... It's a um, it's kind of a never-ending struggle. I mean, the, the, the fiber, the, the wired line networks make sense because, you know, the greater speeds, long longevity aspects, and so forth. Wireless, it costs less. You can get it into more nooks and crannies. Uh, some people feel that more wireless, a, a greater percentage of wireless projects should have been funded. Um, do you or does the, the does RUS have a uh, a philosophy or or some thought process about how do you balance between the two? Um, you know, will more go to wireless in the future? We don't look at it that way. We are technology neutral, so we finance whatever in a competitive grant process wins the uh, wins the competition or in a rolling process whatever is feasible. Um, so we will finance wireless. If it comes in the door first uh, on our rolling loan programs, and we finance a number of wireless projects. Uh, as a matter of fact, we financed 84 projects out of about 300 that were either wireless or wireless and wireline combined. Uh, 51 were pure wireless projects in the um, Recovery Act. So, you know, nearly a third of the projects that we funded um, were uh, wireless. So, I think that's a pretty good pretty good track record. And on top of that, we made sure that there was an opportunity for satellite service for those places that didn't get any wireless or wireline uh, award, those very remote uh, places that don't otherwise have broadband service whatsoever. We provided funding for satellite service, and that was the first federal program to provide direct assistance to help people hook up uh, to satellite service. So we are technology neutral. I think the record uh, demonstrates that. 
The question is which applications came in, who applied, and which ones won. I mean, the uh, fact is that wireless works well in a lot of situations, and we recognize that through our loans. Um, a lot of our applicants were uh, wireline companies that are providing fiber, uh, which is also obviously a very important technology that rural Americans uh, need and and deserve. So we want to see rural Americans have both mobile wireless and fixed wireless, as well as uh, if, if they need that, if they don't have a good wireline alternative. Uh, mobility is important, and so is uh, having great bandwidth that's available through fiber. So we, we, um, we do believe in it, and it's just how the applications came in the door. We, we're an application-driven situation where we, we can only fund those projects that come in, and the ones that came in, uh, I think the wireless did pretty well, but we got more applications from wireline. Mm-hmm. So, as a, so in other words, as a total percentage of applica uh, um, applications coming in, uh, there there was more wired line applications than um, than wireless. There were. I don't know the exact breakout in front of me as to whether who did better uh, as a percentage of their overall applications, but but we mm-hmm. certainly did get more wireline applications, but. Uh, and we did fund a number of wireless applications. Mm-hmm. So now to flip back to the uh, broadband loan program, if I'm bringing an application to the table, I mean, okay, on 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 one hand is first come first serve, okay, got that. But what other criteria do you use to determine, um, I don't know, the worthiness, if you will, of that particular proposal? Well, we look at it if it meets the statutory requirements, and then. Well, let me let me explain that for a second. I mean, they have to be in an area that is underserved by the definition of Congress, which is it's an area that doesn't have three or more uh, three or more uh, providers already providing broadband, and 25% of the area has to be unserved according to the definition Congress laid out, which we elaborated on in our regulation. We published the regulation last March uh, to specify what we mean by that. Uh, and how we interpreted Congress, because they give us discretion to set those limits. So if they meet the statutory uh, requirements, then they're in the door. We will evaluate whether or not the project works. Does it pencil out financially? That's the big one. I mean, a lot of these things, they have to have a certain amount of um, operating uh, capital to make it work. We want to make sure it's sustainable. We're, we're like a bank, Craig. I mean, you know, we, we have a over $60 billion portfolio with a 0.22% default rate. If it was a private financial institution, it would be one of the 30 or 40 largest in America. But if you look at the 30 or 40 largest financial institutions, they generally have a higher default rate than ours. And yet we're going into these rural areas that are very expensive, hard to serve, and that's why they need our assistance. So we're very careful to ensure that these projects are financially feasible. Uh, And we make sure they're technically feasible. We have engineers on staff. I mean, our history, as I explained, was one, we were the back office with all the engineers that would help a small rural co-op that didn't know how to do this. We'd tell them how to set it up so they could provide phone service to themselves in the 40s. Well, we don't have to do that anymore. People are a lot more sophisticated, but we know how to look at a project and say, this will or won't cover it. I mean, we get people coming in here and saying, I can do a wireless uh, service for this area with this number of towers and this uh, propagation characteristics and this on this spectrum with this amount of power. And we'll do the calculations ourselves and say, wait a minute, you gave us an application that doesn't cover the entire service area that you're proposing, so it's not technically feasible. They say, well, let me go back and do it. So then they add a couple towers, and all of a sudden it's no longer financially feasible because the price of doing it is no longer covered by the expected revenue. You see what I mean? So we right. we we have to uh, 
really evaluate these things on a financial basis, on a technical basis, assuming that it meets the statutory requirements. That's that's how we evaluate them. So it's not saying this one's better than that one, although we do try to prioritize those that are in areas that are unserved so that we, we process them quicker. Uh, if you're in, we're going to eventually evaluate the application and uh, get you the uh, answer as to whether or not we think this project actually works. Mm-hmm. Now, this brings up an interesting, I think, issue. Then you're looking at the project to determine its financial sustainability. But does that take into account that if a telecom company or an ISP comes in with a proposal, their criteria for success obviously has to do with profit margin uh, and making a certain level of profit. If a community comes in, they're working from a whole different uh, perspective because their profit is, you know, the public good, the, you know, the number of businesses that come to town and so forth. They're not the same criteria. Mm-hmm. So is a community project or a community uh, public-private uh, partnership project, you know, is, is there some latitude in the evaluation of their financial sustainability if their benchmarks are very different as organizations? We do a lot of work with municipalities, and they do have different requirements as far as the, the finances because normally we have an extensive mortgage, and if it's a private company, it's a little simpler than dealing with how do you attach to the revenues of a municipality or something like that. We work with them, and we did have a number of municipalities that won in the BIT program. We work with them uh, on a regular basis in our programs. So we will work with them, and it takes extra work, but we're willing to do it. You know, it's first come, first serve, but we do – uh, have priorities which can move you ahead of the line. You know, if you're an area that has no existing broadband provider or a, a tribal uh, area that's um, uh, substantially underserved, uh, we we will kind of process those more quickly uh, within the first come first serve kind of kind of world. And we 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 do look at uh, municipalities. We're willing to work with them and deal with their unique challenges if they want to come and and, and avail themselves of our programs. Mm-hmm. Is it advisable for a community to, say, form a public-private partnership rather than, than coming in alone? And, and, and maybe I could make, make this a two-parter. So their option might be, one, we could form, we the community could form a public-private partnership. So there is some provider identified, okay, so forth. We all, I think, understand that one. Or there may be a case such as, um, where would it be, uh, Wired West in Massachusetts, where 44 communities come together, which by coming together, they represent a bigger market than if just one of those come through the door. Is either one of those maybe you might consider a more viable or stronger proposal than just a an incumbent or just a community? It really itself? just, it totally depends on the application. It's, it's hard to say in the abstract because sometimes you'll get a great municipality that's got everything they need and, and it'll work, and sometimes you have a private company that doesn't work well at all that is riddled with financial <laughs> difficulties and, mm-hmm. and and baggage. Uh, so it, it depends on the circumstances. So I'd, I'd really advise folks to come with the strongest app you can, make sure you have the wherewithal to pull this one through, and you have the resources you want to commit them to us so that we know we have the security that we need. And, and like any bank, we will take security. We need to know that we're going to get repaid and we have collateral in the, the programs we're funding or uh, other sources of revenue that are coming into the entity that we're making a loan to. Um, so that we don't end up, you know, holding the bag. Uh, but we, we try to not make uh, loans to companies that would put us in that position in the in, in 
in the last instance anyway. So mm-hmm. it, it, it just depends. But we really do welcome uh, community communities that want to come into our programs and apply. Uh, we will work with them, and I know they have uh, certain unique needs, and each one is different in terms of state and local laws as far as how that works. And so we'll work with them. And if they have a, a private partner that has long experience in providing these systems, that's good too. I mean, some municipalities have long experience in doing utilities work, and some don't. So it just depends. I mean, we work, work with startups all the time too. In our broadband program, about a third of our uh, awardees are startups. So we like to get small businesses going and off the ground. So if, if you haven't done it before, that isn't necessarily an impediment, but you need to know what you're doing. You need to have people on your team that know what you're doing, and you need to apply to us with a uh, proposal that is technologically uh, well put together and feasible. Mm-hmm. One of my um, uh, folks that I uh, keep in touch with and is involved in a statewide project said, you know, make sure you ask this question when you talk to Mr. Adelstein. And I said, okay, let, well, let's Uh-oh. hear it. And so her her question is, what about the geography issue of um, programs are supposed to be a set number of miles away from a metro area? I think it was 50, at least during the broadband stimulus program. You had to be 50 miles away from a major metropolitan area. However, um, the reality in some states is uh, a community may be uh, you know, much closer than that to a major metropolitan area, but because of the land, you know, mountains, whatever, they may still be rural, isolated, and in dire need. But they get dinged because of the distance. Or, or maybe that has changed since the broadband stimulus, but you know, it seems definitely to be an issue. It, it has changed, and, and we actually did away with that in the broadband stimulus itself. There was two okay. rounds of funding in broadband stimulus. Mm-hmm. In the first round, we defined remote as being 50 miles away from a metropolitan area, and that was the only communities; those were the only communities that were able to get full grant. So we focused the grant dollars on the most remote ones, and we found there was a lot of issues with that definition. It was different across regions. Some regions, like in the East Coast, uh, can be very rural but closer to a city than the large expanses of the West, and it just it didn't operate the way that I think we had anticipated. So in the second round, we did away with that, and uh, we gave extra priority for places that would be more rural, but uh, but we, uh, we um, don't any longer use that 50 miles away. The definition that we use for uh, rural is it, can't, it has to be in a community that's 20,000 or less, or communities that are not adjacent to a an urban area of 50,000. So you can't be adjacent to a 50,000-size city, or you can be a community that's smaller than 20,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the clean definition. And then, of course, there's definitions within that of um, in the broadband program of how many providers are currently providing service, uh, you know, three or more, and some of it has to be unserved. That's um, kind of how we how we break it out. So the 50-mile remote definition no longer pertains to any of our programs. And I will be sure to pass the word on to her so she can, uh, you know, get that cleared off the table. That's good. That's good. Yeah, thanks. Um, now, how can communities best mix and match with other agency programs? I mean, we have as a, I don't know, I guess from the D.C. perspective, this is talked about from time to time. You know, you have Department of Energy doing grants, and some of that went to Smart Grid. And you have Department of Transportation, and they're, you know, 
repairing up and laying down roads and so forth. Maybe folks should, you know, partner with them in some way. Um, do, do you, from your perspective, have or see any way, you know, a logical strategy, a logical mix and match strategy? Well, you know, our, our programs work well with universal service. Uh, so people have to see whether or not they're going to get universal service support through it. There's no other programs that really work like ours in broadband. There's after the Recovery Act, where we worked very closely with our friends at the Department of Commerce, NTIA. We had a very complimentary programs there. But today, there's no other federal entity that provides financing for rural uh, broadband. Um, we do work with um, HHS on our distance learning, and particularly the telemedicine part of that program, with DOE on distance learning. Uh, we work with the White House to coordinate uh, across the different agencies. But uh, we are the sort of sole federal financier for rural broadband, um, it does interact, as I said, with uh, universal service, because universal service is one of the revenue streams that is used to finance our loans, to pay to pay for them, uh, pay for the, 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 it provides the revenue stream that, that can repay the loan. So they are very complimentary. We leverage USF. So if USF pays $100 out, we can give $600, for example, of loans against that, and it allows USF funds to be used to leverage investment in rural telecom, which is exactly what Congress intended. Mm -hmm. So, okay, as I'm listening to that, I'm thinking then, so maybe as an example, it makes sense to uh, identify a maybe a uh, Department of Transportation grant that we can use, you know, me, the hypothetical community, could use to uh, fix the highways and upgrade the highway system, and while doing that, also lay uh, conduit for fiber or, or some other infrastructure for wireless, and then also come to um, RUS and say, look, you know, we have this project. It would normally cost us X dollars to do, but if we partner with this um Department of Transportation grant, we can eliminate some of the upfront uh, infrastructure build-out costs, and now it's only going to cost, you know, Y amount, and G is in our program a cool one because, you know, we're able to do it for less because we're partnering with other agencies. Absolutely. We really encourage the leveraging of resources like that. Take, for example, the distance learning telemedicine program. It's uh, the E-rate that's administered to the FCC that makes it possible for people to use that uh, technology cheaply. They can they can do the hookup. So so the FCC will pay for the communications link, and we will provide the equipment on either end. So they work in a complementary fashion. And and DOT is another good example. I mean, when you're digging up the roads, you got to put conduit in there. I mean, this fiber is the way of the future. And and I think uh, Senator Klobuchar has a excellent piece of legislation on that. Uh, so. That's something that thoughtful communities are doing everywhere, and it does make it cheaper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've, we've, we've mentioned um, the FCC and universal service reform a couple of, a couple of times. Now, next week, next Wednesday, um, our guest is going to be Blair Levin, who, uh, as you know, has been very uh, much a prominent figure in the broadband national broadband strategy. And a, a fair amount of his time, I'm actually asking him to devote to explaining some of the ins and outs of USF uh, reform and, and what the program does. Because I believe it's a program that in 
general, people understand. You know, I pay my phone bill, some X number of dollars gets taken out of that to go into this big fund that's supposed to help people get telephone services. And now we want to change that or expand that so that it provides broadband services or somehow that fund impacts the development of broadband in underserved areas, be they rural or urban. Um, in in two minutes, if that is at all possible, how what exactly are we talking about with the reform process? What are we trying to accomplish that will be different or better, hopefully, in the end? And this is like for the non-wonk, non-techie person to, to get their mind around. I think, I think the idea is to transform universal service from a support mechanism for voice telephone, which it traditionally has been, to one that supports broadband service directly. Uh, Congress envisioned this very clearly back in 1996 when they enacted Section 254 of the Communications Act, which, which said that uh, it was to evolve to provide for advanced services. So the FCC is looking at how, how does that evolution happen? Uh, Congress envisioned it would happen as the majority of the population got access to certain technology, and we've seen that a majority has access to broadband now. As a matter of fact, back in my days on the FCC, there was a time when we tried to get that done, but were stymied by the by the chairman at the time, and, and so we're, we're working on that now. I know the FCC is, is hard at work in trying to move universal service into the information age and make sure that places that don't have service at all have access to it. And those who uh, don't use universal service to actually build networks uh, aren't being financed by making it accountable. So there's a real need. In my, my time, I noticed that, for example, companies that were providing service on top of one another, there was multiple providers in the same community getting universal service, and there was no accounting for whether or not the funds that were being provided were actually being used to build broadband-capable plant there, whether it was going straight to the to the shareholders. Um, or to dividends, and that made no sense. That so the so FCC is looking at those issues now to try to resolve uh, resolve them and take those wasted funds and target them towards places that don't have broadband service today or places that truly are building out uh, advanced networks. Now I read an article a couple of days ago or maybe two weeks ago where you had some question about. Uh, the way that the reform process is unfolding and the potential uh, that it might cause uh, hardship among those folks that our U.S. has supported, which could then affect their ability to pay back uh, their loans. And um, I figured I should come to the source and say, well, what, what exactly do you see and how how could what is happening in the reform process affect those folks who who've already been financed by RUS. Well, we recently provided some data at the FCC's request, and it, it's not too surprising what you find. If, if revenues go down, it's harder to repay your loans. It's pretty simple, and there's not enough money to accomplish all the different uh, purposes that the FCC would want, like that all of us would like to see in terms of getting broadband out to every corner of America. So it's just a matter of balancing all the competing uh, demands on a very limited fund to ensure that we get broadband out to rural America and that, uh, you know, people that have done the right thing uh, are transitioned in such a way as they can uh, do what they need to do. Okay. And, um, but I guess I'm still trying to grappling with, and I'm not a finance person, so I, you know, I just put that out there now. Some of this stuff eludes me, but um, 
like for like is there an example of one a type of reform that would then put an additional hardship on a company that's already receiving uh or or has already received a, a an RUS loan? Well, we don't have a position on that uh as an agency. We're working in an intergovernmental uh capacity now to see what the administration position is going to be on it. I have great respect for the FCC. They're an independent agency, and we don't necessarily need to tell them how to do their job. I know that they have uh, the best of intentions, and they'll, they're going to balance these competing interests, but uh, we don't have an exact um, reform agenda. Uh, we're leaving that to the independent agency to determine, and any advice that we give would be arrived at uh, as administration as a whole. Okay. Well, I, being not too shy at giving people advice, whether they've asked for it or not, have a uh, a perception, right? And, and my perception is that um, there needs to be more control and or influence, or maybe you consider them, you know, people consider them one and the same. But we, as citizens, put money into the fund. Yet a lot of the decision-making seems to happen regardless of anything that a community may want in terms of, you know, who gets this money, what do they do with it, what kinds of programs are put into place. And um, and I'm sure that uh, Blair and I will get into this particular discussion because we've, we've had it before, which is what is the appropriate role of the communities, the people who are paying the money and who are getting the broadband that results from whatever happens with the USF fund, you know, they should have a greater role. I mean, wh- what do you think on, about that? Well, you know, I used to be free to pontificate on that when I was back on the FCC. <laughs> but now, as part of the administration, I can't really speak for the administration. Whatever I say does reflect upon the administration. So we don't have a position on that directly. We're, you know, that's really a an issue for my uh, former colleagues over there. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so let's bring it back to the to the broadband loan program. I mean, right. um, is there a component, is there an element of community feedback that says, okay, you know, these folks are proposing to, you know, do this project, and we think this is good or bad for whatever reason we think it's good or bad? I mean, is there any kind of mechanism, feedback mechanism like that? We're trying to to get one going. I mean, generally speaking, it's been sort of an application process, and people will apply. And then, what we have now is is putting in place um, a public comment. Uh, for example, we post service maps for public comment. When somebody says they want to provide broadband somewhere, we're going to ask for comment on whether or not that area is already served, and that's anybody in the public could comment on that, as well as uh, incumbents that say that they're already providing service in those areas, so we can evaluate whether or not the area is, in fact, underserved or whether it meets the statutory requirements. And on top of that, what I've really done, uh, Craig, is to try to involve our state operations. Our our secret weapon at the Rural Utility Service is our field operation. We have 47 state directors, 470 field offices out there, rural development. Those folks are experts in their communities. They live in the communities. They know what's happening on the ground. And traditionally, the telecom programs have been run out of Washington. They, For example, the states run my water programs, but I run telecom out of D.C. But we want to involve the states even more. Uh, and so I've asked the state directors to assign a broadband coordinator and to set up what's called a build-out and build-on project. It's the unfortunate acronym of being BOBO. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is catchy. People will not have trouble remembering it. It I'm is catchy. I'm not sure, you know, if that was the best one, but it is what it is. It is what it is. And so Bobo works. You know, we've got the state directors out there 
identifying based on the NTIFCC maps where broadband is and isn't and trying to determine how are we going to get folks together to get to those areas that don't have broadband. So they're, they're meeting with stakeholders, they're reaching out, they're working with providers, they will work with small businesses. And they're working on two fronts. One is to fill those gaps in coverage where there is no broadband and trying to identify resources including RUS resources and others to make those businesses able to provide that service. And secondly, the other bow part is build on, making sure that where there are broadband networks, whether they were financed by us or NTIA or already existing, that businesses take full advantage of that to maximize their efficiencies, to expand their markets, to increase productivity, and bring jobs into rural America. And they're doing that very successfully. And our, our, our final weapon is, um, is the GFRs, our general field representatives. We hire out of D.C. and have in the field representatives that go out and help people develop applications. So your earlier question was, what, um, what do people do if they want to apply? Well, they can go to our general field representatives. They can contact our state rural development office in whatever state they're in and ask to, to meet with a general field representative to try to, a general field representative for that area to try to put together an application. And we will help them put together the applications for these non-competitive programs. We can't do it for Community Connect or a competitive program, but for a loan program we can. And uh, so we have a field operation that is very much in touch with their communities, that reaches out to them. And in fact, uh, you know, applicants are encouraged to include letters of support in their applications so that we see what the community feeling is about it and it gives us a sense for uh, what kind of community support they have. You know, it's kind of interesting, uh, this is a side thing, I apologize, we only have a few minutes left, but the one time I did not make the announcement about we don't, we aren't taking um, call-ins is the one day we actually got people calling us, and I'm sorry, but we're not we're not able to, to, to take those. It's a technical issue, it's not anything else, it's just I can't get to them, and I apologize. So I'd be happy to answer them otherwise, I would have done it, Craig. No worries. No worries. We'll, we'll get you back again, you know, because obviously this has been a very uh, beneficial um, exchange. Let me touch on one thing, maybe two if we can get it in, into four minutes. But the first one is the, uh, you know, what speeds define broadband? Because I understand today that there is a notice of inquiry that among its questions it is trying to get answered from the public is what defines underserved and what should be the speeds that define broadband? including should there be different speeds uh, that define broadband for wireless versus wired. Now, um, and I don't know where this sort of fits in the policy and whose agency is responsible, but you're giving out pro money to, to facilitate broadband. What's your position on, you know, what should our minimums be? What we were looking at in the Recovery Act, which we then use as our definition in the uh, in the broadband loan program is five megabits per second combined up and down. We think uh, in, in the case of the of the uh, Broadband Recovery Act program that if half the community didn't have that, that that meant there wasn't sufficient broadband for rural economic development. You really need about, you know, four down and one up. And that's going to increase over time. As we did our definition for the broadband loan program, we did it in such a way as we could issue that by a separate ruling that could be updated regularly instead of having it stuck in regulation so we would have to change our regulation each time we raised it because we expect as Congress did in the Communications Act that that's an evolving definition 
that's always going to be uh, moving up. And we're seeing increasing demands for bandwidth. Uh, today, 5 megabits per second might be sufficient for economic development, but uh, in a year or five or ten, I mean, who knows what the needs are going to be, particularly for businesses. Uh, we're part of the Rural Development uh, Missionary at USDA, and our job is to create jobs, create economic development. So it's, it's one thing for people to be able to play, you know, games, which they want to do, and let, you know, rural kids, if they're going to stay in their rural communities, need to have the opportunities that urban kids have. But we also want to make sure that businesses can get access to the level of bandwidth that they need. Uh, and we didn't distinguish between wireline and wireless. We set a definition that we thought was sufficient for 4G wireless. And we don't want to particularly finance uh, anything less than 4G. At this point, I don't know if it makes a lot of sense for us to be financing 3G expansions. If people are putting in new systems, they ought to be 4G. So, <laughs> that would be a step backward, I guess. <laughs> right. At this point, we we want rural areas to have what urban areas have, and we are always trying to push the cutting edge, the best technologies. So we, we think whether it's wireline or wireless, they've, they've got to be able to do 5 uh, mm -hmm. megabits per second combined. Now, that would be a, you know, the equivalent of about 4 uh, four down, one up. Mm -hmm. Well, to your you know your point about looking to the future and so forth, I'll just give you a heads up that I'll I'll send you a copy. I'm in the middle right now of doing a survey, a national survey of economic development professionals on uh, discussing the impact of broadband on local economies, and several of the questions hinge around this issue of what's minimum acceptable speeds if you want to achieve the economic outcomes that uh, you know, you as an agency, as an economic development agency, is trying to foster in your community. And I think it will be very interesting um, to get that perspective to help make these kinds of decisions about what should our minimums be. And, and it's probably good to have it be something that's fluid so that you as a you know, group, as a funding group, are able to move with the times and change with the needs. Well, that's right. I mean, it was, we, we had contemplated 10 megabits per second, uh, which would be very helpful, but then that would exclude uh, mobile wireless, which is also a valuable service. So that's where we kind of landed on the five. So we were thinking about wireless, but not as a separate definition, but one that would encompass both wireless and wireline, so we'd be able to, to finance uh, both, because we think rural citizens want both. Mm hmm and it very well may be during this FCC process that someone will say, well, maybe we should have a a, def, a different uh, criteria for measuring uh, the minimums because if you're putting in wireline, by default the capability is so high, why would you you know limit it with a low minimum threshold? We're clearly within wireless. There are the physics involved that basically define a certain ceiling on how much um, capacity you're going to be able to push over the wires or the wireless aspect of it. Yeah, and of course, they're limited by the wireline aspect, too. If they don't have the backhaul, if they don't have fiber to the tower, for example, or fiber fairly close, they're not going to be able to do uh, major broadband uh, back and forth either. So they're mm -hmm. very much interdependent. So look, I am mindful of your time. I know you have another meeting after this, so I can I'll give you the option if you want to stay and ask, you know, discuss some more stuff. Then we're fine. We still got some, you know, technically on the clock. We still have time. But if you do need to go, that's that's fine. And I understand. And, I, and hopefully we can circle back around at another time in the future. So you tell me, do you have to go? Well, I have five more minutes. If you have any last questions or issues you wanted to cover, uh, 
about what well, let me, doing. Yeah, well, great. Let me let me bring up this one that, again, you know, I get a fair amount of feedback, you know, because I'm out there, I'm doing, you know, the Facebook thing, the Twitter thing. But several people um, were very much um, passionate about this thing that um, they felt that women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses, contractors, did not get um, – you know, any significant projects out of the whole broadband stimulus program. Now, I know that, you know, there are, um, you know, requirements and legislation relative to fairness. So it isn't so much that is a charge per se, but it was sort of like in the final analysis we're looking around and, you know, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of women-owned businesses that receive grants and and same on on the minority side. Um, is there any program in place, at least from the RUS perspective, that identifies and cultivates that kind of participation? Yes, we're engaged in major outreach effort, and we're developing those right now. We we attempted that during the uh, during the BIP program. We did ten workshops that there were actually pre workshops specifically targeted towards uh, Native Americans and uh, and people of color. We made every attempt to reach out, and the communities that we are serving uh, are certainly very diverse. I mean, 32% of the of them are free lunch eligible, and we determined that the rural areas, uh, based on information we got from the Department of Education, uh, are definitely um, very uh, very diverse in their in their population, and we overrepresent minorities and Native Americans to some extent in where we're going. We also got a number of uh, grants out to uh, Native American uh, tribes and corporations that are serving Native American areas. Uh, so we, we made every effort to do outreach, but I think we need to do more. I, I don't think we've done enough, and our Secretary Tom Vilsack has made a priority of um, of doing more outreach to really try to change uh, the way that the USDA has done business. Over the past, we've had recent settlements for some of our agricultural uh, um, programs not reaching uh, those communities, and it's something that we at USDA recognize and are committed to changing. Uh, this administration has made a top priority, and I hear from the Secretary on a regular basis, both personally and emails, that what are we doing on this, what can we do, and we've been, of course, at RUS doing this from day one. Under the BIP program, it was a big priority, uh, and it is now to do uh, more and more uh, targeted outreach. Mm-hmm. So this, and this will probably be the last question, I guess. Um, but this is like a this is a thorny question, and I. Uh, but I think it's a question that has to be asked. I was called in by a group to do an evaluation of a community that is both isolated and it's impoverished. And no matter how you look at it, there is no conceivable business case to be made um, just by virtue of size and, like I said, the number of people unemployed, so forth and so on. And it brings up the question that no one really wants to ask because of its implications, but is there, is, there a point, <laughs> is there a point when the community can't just can't be, be considered viable for a program? Well, you know, there are communities that aren't served by a viable proposal. I mean, that's for sure. They're, they're our applications that we evaluated that they came in for 100% grant and they were eligible for 100% grant, but they weren't financially feasible. Uh, they couldn't make the numbers work, even if it was all grant. Uh, so a loan-only program it may never work in those places, if you think about it, because mm-hmm. the idea of our loan program is you can get capital where it's not otherwise available, but you have to pay us back 
Um, and that's why we have the Community Connect grant program, which is grant only, but some of those aren't uh, eligible either. I mean, we have um, we have the ability to provide grants to communities that have no broadband service where a commercial provider would never go. We have to make sure that those are sustainable too. I mean, mm -hmm. some communities are eligible for them. Those are communities that might never get broadband through a loan program or through the private sector, but Community Connect will hook them up, but it's only a $13 million program. There's more communities than we have funds available. And, and even then, some communities are, are so remote that they might not have the ability to put together a feasible uh, Community Connect grant program. That's why we felt satellite might be uh, a resort for those folks, and we did provide for that in the Recovery Act program that we assist people to get a low-cost hookup uh, to satellite, and that's always viable, almost not, almost always, depending on where your uh, where your premise is situated. Uh, if you can't get broadband elsewhere, but uh, ultimately there are some places that are very very remote, and it's very hard to make those uh, pencil out. Right, I, I totally understand. Well, this has been a very uh, beneficial discussion. I think we've learned a lot. I think the audience has learned a lot. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm honored that you have have graced this show because we're not even our first full month yet. We're like three weeks into this uh, into this talk show, and I'm very, very pleased that both the audience and the, the willingness of people such as yourself to to participate. And um, and maybe we can get you back in November because you know there is that Cal Stanford game coming up, and maybe we can talk a little bit about you know that that particular rivalry that's kind of close to both of us. Uh, as long as Stanford wins, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, again, thank you, sir, for your time. It's been much appreciated, and thank you for our audience for listening in. I think we, we've had our highest audience to date today, and people have stuck, have stuck around for the whole thing. So, you're a star, sir, and everyone is very pleased that you're that you're here and out there fighting the good fight for broadband. Well, Craig, keep up the good work, and good luck with this new show. Thank you. Thank you very much. So have a good day, sir, and then for our audience, uh, we're going to wrap. I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Hiawatha Broadband Communications, uh, who have definitely been a, a good part of this effort here. Um, also want to thank uh, our media sponsors, GigaOM, Broadband Communities Magazine, and MuniWireless.com. I will be actually broadcasting from a number of conferences coming up in the next couple of months and would definitely love to meet some of the audience uh, in person. I'll be at the Fiber to the Home Council uh, conference. I'll be at the NATOA conference, which is in San Francisco, so it's right across the bridge. Um, our economic development uh, survey will have been completed, and the analysis report on that of what economic development professionals are saying across the country. That's going to be uh, released uh, on September 19th. And I'm also doing a number of state uh, events in Missouri and in Kansas in November and um, December. And we'll be in Tuskegee uh, in Alabama for another conference and talking about broadband. So, again, thank you. Thank you for following us. We'll see you again um, Next week, don't miss our show with Blair Levin because that is guaranteed to be a real barn burner, I can, I can tell already. So thank you and have a great day.